Welcome to the True Crime Truckers Podcast. This podcast deals with true crime and subjects such as rape, murder, and sexual assault. This podcast may not be suitable for younger listeners, so listener discretion is advised. When we think of serial killers, we tend to have a handful of people that come to mind. Whether it be Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac, or Dahmer. Yet for everyone out there, there is a man who stands alone atop the pantheon of serial killers. A man for whom the term serial killer itself became part of the zeitgeist. A man who is known to have killed in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Colorado, Utah, and Florida. And he may have killed in many other states as well. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the case of Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24, 1946, to Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. His father's identity has never been confirmed. His birth certificate is said to assign paternity to a salesman and Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall, though other accounts state his father listed as, quote, unknown. Louise claimed that she had been seduced by an old money war veteran named Jack Worthington, and the King County Sheriff's Office has him listed as the father in their files. Some family members have expressed suspicion that Bundy might have been fathered by Louise's own violent, abusive father, Samuel Cowell, but no maternal evidence has ever been cited to support this. 
For the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in the Philadelphia home of his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock. Family, friends, and even young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. He eventually discovered the truth, although he had varied recollections of the circumstances. He told a girlfriend that his cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a, quote, bastard, but he told biographers Stephen Mikelid and Hugh Ainsworth that he found the certificate himself. Biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, who knew Bundy personally, believed that he did not find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. Bundy expressed a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage for himself. In some interviews, Bundy spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Rule that he, quote, identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather, unquote. In 1987, however, he and other family members told attorneys that Samuel Cowell was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews, beat his wife and the family dog, and swung neighborhood cats by their tails. He once threw Louise's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. He sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences, and at least once flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity was raised. Bundy described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression and feared to leave their house towards the end of her life. Bundy occasionally exhibited disturbing behavior even at an early age. His Aunt Julia recalled waking one day from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the cowl kitchen. Her three-year-old nephew was standing by the bed, smiling. In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Cal to Nelson, and at the urging of multiple family members, she left Philadelphia with her son to live with her cousin Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at an adult singles night at the Tacoma First Methodist Church. They married later that year, and John Bundy formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Louise conceived four children of their own, and although Johnny tried to include his adopted son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant. He later complained to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father, quote, wasn't very bright, and didn't make much money, unquote. I grew up in a wonderful home with two dedicated and loving parents, and one of uh, five brothers and sisters. A home where we as, our, as children were the focus of, of my parents' lives, where we regularly attended church, two Christian parents who did not drink, they did not smoke, there was no gambling, there was no physical abuse or fighting in the home. I'm not saying this was leave it the beaver. It wasn't a perfect home. Well, no, I don't know that such a home exists, but it was a fine, solid Christian home, and nobody... Uh, I hope no one will try to take the easy way out and to try to blame or otherwise accuse my, my family of contributing to this because I know, and I'm trying to tell you as honestly as I know how, what happened. Bundy had different recollections of Tacoma when he spoke to his biographers. 
When he talked to Micklid and Ainsworth, he described how he roamed the neighborhood picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women. When he spoke to Polly Nelson, he explained how he pursued detective magazines, crime novels, and true crime documentaries for stories that involved sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed bodies. In a letter to Rule, he asserted that he, quote, never ever read the fact detective magazines and shuddered at the thought, quote, unquote, that anyone would. In his conversations with McLeod, he described how he would consume large quantities of alcohol and, quote, canvass the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or, quote, whatever could be seen. As I think I, I explained to you last night, Dr. Dobson, in an anecdote, that as young boys do, we explored the the back roads and sideways and byways of our neighborhood and oftentimes people would dump the garbage and whatever they were cleaning out of their house and from time to time we'd come across so, pornographic books of a harder nature than uh, more uh, graphic, you might say, more explicit nature than we would encounter, let's say, in your local grocery store. And this also included such things as, let's say, detective magazines and uh, more hard Those that involve violence. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, I, and this is something I think I want to emphasize is the, 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 the most damaging um, uh, kinds of pornography. And again, I'm talking from personal experience, uh, hard, real personal experience. The most damaging kinds of pornography are those that involve violence uh, and sexual violence. Because the wedding of those two forces, as, as I know only too well, brings about behavior that is just, uh, is just uh, too terrible to describe. Bundy also varied the accounts of his social life. He told McClud and Ainsworth that he, quote, chose to be alone as an adolescent because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. He claimed that he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. Quote, I didn't know what made people want to be friends, unquote, he said. Quote, I didn't know what underlay social interactions, unquote. Classmates from Woodrow Wilson High School told Rule, however, that Bundy was, quote, well-known and well-liked there, a medium-sized fish in a large pond, unquote. Downhill skiing was Bundy's only significant athletic avocation. He enthusiastically pursued the activity by using stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached age 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record, which is customary in Washington. After graduating from high school in 1965, Bundy spent a year at the University of Puget Sound before he transferred to the University of Washington in 1966 to study Chinese. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate 
who is identified by several pseudonyms in Bunny's biographies, most commonly as, quote, Stephanie Brooks. In early 1968, he dropped out of college and worked at a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington state. In August of that year, Bundy attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Shortly thereafter, Brooks ended their relationship and returned to her family home in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and a lack of ambition. Psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis would later pinpoint this crisis as, quote, probably the pivotal time in his development. Devastated by Brooks's rejection, Bundy traveled to Colorado and then farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia and enrolling for one semester at Temple University. It was at this time in early 1969, Rule believes that Bundy visited the office of birth records in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage. Bundy was back in Washington by the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Kleffler, a divorcee from Ogden, Utah, who worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Their stormy relationship would continue well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. In mid-1970, Bundy, now focused and goal-oriented, re-enrolled at UW, this time as a psychology major. He became an honor student and was well regarded by his professors. In 1971, he took a job at Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, where he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, a former Seattle police officer and inspiring crime writer. She would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. Rule saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at the time and described him as, quote, kind, solicitous, and empathetic. Uh, Ted was my partner at the crisis clinic right. for a little over a year. And, and every Sunday night and every Tuesday night, he and I were locked up alone together up on um, Capitol Hill from 10 at night. I, my shift was 10 to 2. His was nine to nine. He got paid uh, as a work-study student. But if, if we had people actively committing suicide or we had him on the line, I didn't say, well, my shift is up. I have to go. So I was off in there all night. Um, and I liked him. He was so good on the phones. Uh, he'd walk me to my car and say, Ann, lock your doors because I don't want anything to happen to you on the way home. After graduating from UW in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. Posing as a college student, he shadowed Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rosalini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' team. Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee after Evans was re-elected. Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Bundy and described him as, quote, smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system, unquote. In early 1973, despite mediocre law school admission test scores, Bundy was accepted into the law schools of the University of Puget Sound and the University of Utah. 
on the strength of letters of recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. During a trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 1973, Bundy rekindled his relationship with Brooks. She marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of a legal and political career. He continued to date Kleffler as well. Neither woman was aware of the other's existence. In the fall of 1973, Bundy matriculated at the University of Puget Sound's law school and continued courting Brooks, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage. At one point, he introduced her to Davis as his fiancée. In January of 1974, however, he abruptly broke off all contact. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. Finally reaching him by phone a month later, Brooks demanded to know why Bundy had unilaterally ended their relationship without explanation. In a flat, calm voice, he replied, quote, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean, unquote, and hung up. She never heard from him again. He later explained, quote, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her, unquote. Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for the breakup she initiated in 1968. By then, Bundy had begun skipping classes at law school. By April, he had stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Trucker Podcast Group. You can also join Age of Radio's Facebook group at Addicted to Podcasting. This is a group dedicated to the show hosts and fans of Age of Radio shows. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org slash true crime truckers slash there you can browse the bazaar where you can purchase items from our wonderful sponsors as well as browse other shows on the age of radio syndicate also if you'd like to donate to the show and get yourself a podcast sticker go to www.patreon.com slash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.